You may not uh, know what Sunday school is, but we used to call that the Sunday school answer, that if you're in a Bible study or something like that, even if you feel intimidated, if you just answer every question and just say Jesus, like you, you'd probably be right. I mean, because it all comes down to that. And so, like Neil mentioned, we've been talking about the Bible because we don't want you to necessarily be intimidated when you approach it. And so we've been talking about and not, an, not only just an overview of what the Bible is and what it contains, but how to study it each week. And so uh, today is no different. Like Neil mentioned, we're going to be talking all about Jesus and the Gospels and the good news that Jesus brings. Uh, as, as you do, a couple weeks ago, I was talking with my Uber driver. And if you've ever uh, ridden Uber, you can know that can sometimes be an interesting experience. Uh, but we were talking, and uh, it was a gentleman who spends a lot of time, or used to spend a lot of time watching the news, but he kind of stopped doing that because of how negative it is all the time. I don't know, have you guys noticed that at all? I don't know, I don't watch it because it's negative. And, and so he was talking about how, man, if, if he could start his own media communications conglomerate, you know, if he had a few hundred million dollars and could start his own network, he would, he would start one and he would call it the Good News Network. Just so there could be, does that sound like a neat idea? So, so I did what any modern person would do and I Googled that and said, well, I wonder if there's anything, well, there is a Good News Network that already exists. And so somebody started the Good News Network so they could share news. And there's a lot of studies that have been done to see how negative news impacts our lives and how positive news impacts our lives. And so um, the Good News Network, in their description, it was founded in 1997 uh, because media was failing to report the positive news. And so this is the example that they give. In the 1990s, while homicide rates in the U.S. plummeted by 42%, I didn't know that, Television news coverage of murders surged more than 700%, according to the Center for Media and Public Affairs. Anger, pain, exposed shame, and fear get ad clicks and generate revenue. And so you, maybe you've noticed that as headlines start to come out, more and more of them are clickbait in order for you to click on them and read them, although there's very, they're very negative, they're viral, they get shared, but they also shape our views and our perspectives in negative ways. Uh, there's a Harvard research that was done and showed that if people watched even three to four minutes of negative news, 27 per participants were more likely to be depressed for the next six to eight hours of their day. And so you might not realize like, how, how much that actually impacts them. So vice versa, those who watch transformative or positive stories, on the other hand, reported having a good day 88% of the time. And what people were surprised about the study and the conclusions that it made is that people's moods were elevated at hours later. And that attested to the power of the effect of hearing and consuming positive news, good news during our day. And we've all experienced that. Like we know one piece of news can make or break our day. I mean, one, just one phrase can like set us off for the rest of the day. But not only do we enjoy good news, we need it. Even if we're having a bad day, just a little bit of perspective goes a long way. And good news is the point of the Bible. It's, it's the climax. It's what everything moves to. We talked about the Old Testament last week. The Old Testament is all leading to Jesus. And in the New Testament of the Bible, when there's a little bit of transition, and last week we talked about covenant and how this is a new covenant that God is making with humanity, um, it, starts with, it starts with Jesus and starts with the first four books of the New Testament called the Gospels. Gospel just simply means good news. And so when you see that, when you see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in your New Testament, the gospel of, it just means the good news that they're sharing. And that's why the Bible has such a transformative effect. When we understand 
that the culmination of all of Scripture is to give us and to share good news with us about our world. It's the overarching narrative by which we understand our lives. It has a profound effect for us. And so I'm going to remind you of our challenge that we started a couple weeks ago is to read for four weeks, read the Bible at least four times a day for at least 10 minutes and see how it might impact your life. So last week we talked about the pattern of the Old Testament and the covenant that God welcomes us into that originated back then and brought us to Jesus for, for fulfillment. Um, and so as we look into the New Testament, just as I mentioned before, we're only dealing with the first four of the 27 books. We'll deal with the other 23 next week because they deal with the most important factor and events pertaining to the Christian faith. If the Bible, and this is the definition that we've been using, if the Bible is God's preserved message of his redemption of and relationship with humanity, God's word is all about good news. That's what it's leading to. That's what it's all about. And so when we refer to the gospel of Jesus, we're talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in which we find the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all about. They're all about Jesus, and that's why they're called the gospels. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're, uh, if you read them, they're a little bit more similar in their content, and they're called the synoptic gospels. They have about 60% of the same content with a few things in each gospel that are unique. John, on the other hand, is about 90% unique. He takes a little bit different approach. They still overlap at some, at some key points. And, and I just want to identify that some people see these differences as problems that these gospels have among each other, but they're not problems. They're just four different perspectives on the same thing. So let me kind of give you an example. We're talking about news, that kind of thing. So think about ABC, NBC, and CBS. If they're talking about and reporting on news stories, you could flip back and forth through them, and they would kind of be talking about similar news stories, and they might even have similar content and ways that they talk about it. And just imagine that there might be like a fourth news network. I don't know what that would be. I, nothing comes to mind. But that would have a different perspective on things and that you could, uh, you could look at that and it would share that. Okay, it's kind of like that might be a horrible example, but it's kind of like that. And they were each written to different audiences with different purposes. Matthew, for example, he's a former tax collector and he's a po an apostle of Jesus. And he writes about Jesus being the Jewish expected Messiah. Messiah or Christ just simply means the anointed one. And so that's what he wants you to know and understand about Jesus when he writes. Mark, who records his gospel as a documenter of Peter, who's an apostle, his eyewitness account and experience, he wants us to understand that Jesus is the suffering servant savior. And so that's his perspective that he shares with us about who Jesus is. Luke, who kind of like Mark, who is not necessarily an eyewitness account was a researcher. He was a physician. He was a documenter of Jesus and the church. He actually wrote two books in the Bible, Luke and then the book of Acts. And so it's his part one and part two about Jesus and the church. We're hitting the church next week. Um, and he wants us to know and understand that Jesus is the king over the new covenant. And John, finally, who's uh, the most unique out of the four Gospels, he's an eyewitness and he's an apostle of Jesus, and he wants us to know and understand that Jesus is the divine, the Son of God. Now, as you read the Gospels, you can also see all these themes interchangeably as, as well, even though they have their different uh, thrusts, but that's simply because they're all about the same person. They're all about Jesus. 
And, and just, I just want to make a quick note on authorship because when we approach the Bible, and maybe, maybe you've had some of these objections or maybe you know somebody who has, when you read the Bible, we don't, read, we don't approach the Bible and see the Bible like we do a modern book. So, for example, when we open up the Gospel of Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, there's not like a jacket cover that has a Library of Congress number and there's not the author's picture on the back that you can flip to and there's not a foreword and there's not a note from the author, you know, describing their qualifications and who they are and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I just want to share with you, and there's a whole lot more to be said about that, but don't get too hung up on those kinds of things because... Um, our, the way that we experience literature today is different from the ancient world. And so I, I think we can understand that, that you know, a couple thousand years separates us and so that we might have different ways that we approach it. That doesn't make these writings any less valid. In fact, they had their own uh, way of determining authenticity and authority for the way things were shared. And so, for example, these gospels would not be shared without knowledge of their authority and authenticity. Uh, so when they're shared, it's shared like, hey, this is the person who wrote this. This is why we're paying attention to it. This is why we're passing this along in our churches and our congregations, because we know who wrote these. We, we can ask them. We can write them a letter and talk to them about what they said. And in fact, uh, have you heard of the early church fathers? If I say that, are you familiar with who they are? No. Okay. Um, so the early church fathers are simply, the, these are not people that uh, wrote things that are in the Bible, but these are people that are only about a generation removed from the authors of the Bible. And so we could talk about Polycarp or Papias or Ignatius or Irenaeus or Origen. Um, maybe you've heard some of those names before. For example, Polycarp writes, he was, a, he was a disciple of John the Apostle. And so they write and they talk about who wrote the books of the Bible and they affirm the authority and where they come from. And so we have people who know the authors of the Bible that affirm for us who the authors are. Uh, I just wanna, wanna, wanna share that, uh, just that little tidbit because I think that's helpful. So as each of these authors produce a written account of the life of Jesus, what's incredibly impressive about these four writings especially in light of the, some of the differences that we might see and think, well, why, is, why do they write about that differently, is, is how uniquely they agree on who Jesus is. There are really no other writings, there's really no other example quite like the Gospels because of how much they agree about who Jesus is and, and what they write about his ministry and how they all point to the same conclusion about his life. And they're written very strangely, too, when you think about that, because they don't write about themselves as follower of Jesus, followers of Jesus in, in a very great light. I mean, there's some things that they share about their doubt, about their fears, about their anxiety about Jesus that you think, well, solid followers of Jesus would never feel like that, and they would never share that, right, unless maybe they were being authentic about what they experienced. They wrote about people and they wrote about events that could be independently confirmed by the people who lived through them, by the people who observed them. It's very difficult to write about feeding of a 5,000 you know, member group of people and, and not know that there are people who could say, no, that never happened, I was not, not there. They wrote about things like that, who, people who lived through those things. And they built all of, uh, the pinnacle of all of this, of Jesus' life on the heresy that brings the swiftest com condemnation from the political leaders and the religious leaders of the, of the day. The resurrection of Jesus and putting it all on that is a very unique thing that the gospels do and they call all of this good news. 
And Mark, in, in Mark chapter 1, he's, his is the most concise uh, a representation of Jesus' gospel. And so this is, this is how he starts off his gospel in Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. And after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news, the gospel of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. And we might be able to summarize the gospel if we're familiar at, at all with Jesus' life and some of these writings in the New Testament as Jesus dying on the cross for our sins so that we wouldn't, be, we, we wouldn't have to, to being raised back to new life so that his sacrifice would be everlasting to allow us to spend eternity with our Heavenly Father. And while it's true that you don't have the gospel of Jesus without the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus was already proclaiming the gospel in conjunction with a very important phrase that he repeats over and over throughout his ministry, and that's the kingdom of God. This new covenant that Jesus ushers in brings about a whole new conception of what it means to have loyalty and citizenship, and this gospel is anchored in his teaching on God's kingdom. And this teaching of God's kingdom, as Jesus goes throughout his ministry, it's subversive to the political and religious uh, thought of the day. It's subversive to the teachings of the old covenant that had really become almost a caricature of themselves at this point in time in Israel, the nation of Israel's history. Um, but it was also subversive to the Roman Empire as well. And here's how we know this. Because the word gospel, the word for good news here in this context, wasn't only used in the Bible. The Greek word for good news is euangelion. And so that's what it looks like in Greek. And it simply means good news. This is where uh, we get our word gospel from. Euangelion is also the word uh, that the Greek word that uh, gives us our word evangelist or evangelism. And this word was used very regularly in a political context, starting with Alexander the Great. And so, for example, Alexander the Great would have evangelists that would go out and share the good news of his empire, the safety that he would provide, the dominance and authority and power that he had. They would go share the good news of his empire. And, and it was the same for the Caesars as well. The Caesars had their own gospel. They were keeping people happy in the empire, promising enough things that connected to their emotions and desires you know, by essentially preying on their fear and socially engineering them to be uh, loyal subjects 
by offering them paved streets, running water, entertainment, freedom of religion. Listen, listen to how Caesar Augustus was described, and this is, inscription was found um, in 9 BC. And the same uh, Greek word for good news uh, was used, for gospel was used in this inscription. All right, so this is about Caesar Augustus. Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done, and since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings or the euangelion or the gospel for the world that came by reason of him. And so you, if, if you know that and what's happening in history and how they're talking about the Caesar Augustus and that he's a god who's come as a savior world to bring peace, and you know that the gospels are written in such a way that they're using the same exact language, that they're intentionally being subversive because the difference of the kingdom Jesus came to talk about versus the kingdoms that everyone else in the world thought that they wanted and thought that they were supposed to pursue. For example, the Pax Romana, peace and stability brought by the Roman Empire, that was their gospel that they spread to get people to be good citizens. We still have the same thing in modern politics, by the way. We stopped calling it gospel, we call it propaganda, was what I was gonna say, rhetoric. Or we have maybe uh, slogans that, that we use. I've got a couple examples from the past two uh, winning presidential campaigns that I'll share with you. Like for example, hope and change you can believe in. That's a gospel. That's a good news that was given. Or, or maybe make America great again. We could talk about that one. That's a gospel. It's propaganda. It's a slogan. And neither one, of them's, neither one of those slogans have to mean anything. We want hope, change, and greatness. Oh, okay. What does that even mean? Like, you don't even have a, have a policy. And it doesn't even matter how it affects us, because we just kind of place in the blank, fill in the blank what that means to us and decide whether or not it's something that we want to pursue. The parallels between Rome and the United States in this regard aren't all that pleasant to consider, actually. And so to, the thing to understand is this is that the gospel of Jesus intentionally conflicted with the gospel of the day and continues to do so with the gospels of today. But only one kingdom can be victorious and only one kingdom can last. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one who came to usher in the kingdom of God. And here's the trouble with Jesus, and here's why he ends up being crucified on a cross because of the way that he talks about this kingdom. It's because he has a conflicting view from the way that people naturally think about kingdom and how God does. See, people were looking for a perfect earthly kingdom with maybe some spiritual ramifications. The problem here is that uh, this, this type of earthly kingdom is limited by time and space and inclusion. It's marked by war. It's marked by uh, people being left behind, be, being marginalized, being, uh, being treated horribly. And yet Jesus comes along and talks about this perfect kingdom of God that is spiritual. 
that has earthly ramifications for how we ought to live our life and how we ought to interact with our fellow human being, which is all-encompassing and all-inclusive. Kingdom of God realities that Jesus comes to teach and to share are found throughout the Gospels. Jesus is the only catalyst for the kingdom of God, for example. In John chapter 1, he writes the word about Jesus. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law that was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. See, without Jesus, there is no perfect kingdom. Without Jesus, there is no kingdom of God. Here's the next thing uh, that we read in the Gospels about how Jesus demonstrates the kingdom of God. This example comes from Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 14. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. See, the reason that Jesus performed miracles, it was never about the miracles themselves, is because Jesus was proving that he had the one true message about the kingdom of God. And then finally, uh, Jesus calls us to desire the kingdom of God above any other kingdom. In Matthew chapter 6, as he, he teaches his disciples his prayer. He says, this is, then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. See, Jesus directs us to live lives that are focused on God's kingdom, both in the here now and then. So for Jesus, this wasn't a, a kingdom that's like a ticket punch that we wait and we kind of punch our ticket and so we get on the train when we die and then we go to heaven. He's talking about a kingdom that changes everything in our lives right now. And the question that you will be confronted with when you read the Gospels is this. It's which kingdom will you live in? Which kingdom is going to consume your time and energy and pursuit? It's the question Jews and Gentiles alike had to consider when they considered Jesus. Is it the kingdom that you're born into? Is it the kingdom that you're trying to make in your own image? Is it driven by entertainment, healthcare, education, and a strong defense? Which kingdom are you going to live in? Where's the kingdom of God going to be the one that you choose that's driven by the word became flesh who dwelt among us full of grace and truth? A kingdom who is, that is victorious in the past, the present, and future in your life. A kingdom that has no end. A kingdom that suffers no fear of war or economic downturn that cannot be defeated by physical hardship. 
These are the decisions that we're called to make when we discover Jesus in the Gospels of the New Testament. And word of caution as you read, you're going to find stuff that you don't agree with. Because there is a war of sorts, a spiritual one, between the kingdoms that we're asked to choose between. Don't expect to always agree with the kingdom that Jesus speaks about and the way that he calls us to live in it. But here's the thing that we do know is that his kingdom is good, his kingdom is righteous, and it's holy, and it's perfect. We're called to put the Bible into practice to read it so we know how to live within that kingdom now. And we get to share it with others to help them do the same thing. And that's, that's what our citizenship in this kingdom looks like. That's why it's so important to know what Jesus says in the Gospels and to read our Bibles. Is Our Bible reading is not just for our benefit, it's also for the benefit of those around us. We get to be evangelists of the good news of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus share the good news and they help people live out the good news of Jesus. That's what the Gospel is all about. That's what knowing what it says is all about. It's how it transforms our lives and how it transforms the lives of those around us. Let's pray. God, as we, as we read Scripture, and particularly as we read the Gospels, God, and uh, as we know that there's a spiritual war being fought over the kingdoms of this world and your kingdom that is breaking forth and breaking in and has, has come because of Jesus, God, we ask that you guide us through your Holy Spirit and how we might navigate those skirmishes that we face, those battles uh, that we know are happening for our attention, for our desires, uh, for what drives us in this world. God, we ask for your spirit uh, to, to give us the peace that we need um, to pursue the kingdom that God desires for us through, his, through your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.